Welcome to the Workplace Forward Podcast with your host, executive coach Tegan Travato, founder and CEO of Bright Arrow Coaching. Are you a perpetually busy, always overstretched leader or executive who feels there's never time to keep up with leadership trends in an always changing landscape, much less self-care? Workplace Forward will help you overcome both challenges and gain peace of mind. Through Tegan's conversations with executives, experts, authors, and innovators about their leadership journeys, you'll get quick hits of two things you need the most. Essential insights to help navigate the future workplace and best practices on the more human side of leadership so you're empowered to take care of yourself while leading others. Enjoy some well-deserved time for yourself to learn and recharge. Let's get started with today's guest. Tegan, take it away. Esther Choi started teaching leadership storytelling in 2010 before it was a thing. Over the years, through her firm, Leadership Story Lab, she's worked with clients and industries as wide-ranging as healthcare, engineering, investment, tech, airlines, and consumer packaged goods. Esther has combined the science of persuasion and the art of storytelling to help her clients find more meaningful ways to connect with their audiences. Her business storytelling book, Let the Story Do the Work, quickly shot to number one as a new release on Amazon. She's currently a contributor for Forbes Leadership Strategy Channel and gets quoted frequently in leading media outlets such as the New York Times and Entrepreneur.com. Esther is an adjunct faculty member at the Kellogg School of Management and in partnership with Kellogg's Ward Center for Family Enterprises, she hosts the Family In Business Podcast. Every Monday morning, you'll find Esther beginning her week with a thousand meter swim and a raw jalapeno. She's a mom of two trilingual girls, wife of a German who's not very punctual, and is a very humble student of kite surfing. Esther, welcome to the podcast. Thank you so much for having me. Yeah. Listen, I have to dive right in and we have to talk about a couple of things in your bio before we get into (laughs) your book and other things leadership oriented. What's with the jalapeno every morning, the raw jalapeno? Please enlighten me. So I think you're referring to my LinkedIn bio. I start every Monday with a thousand meter swim and and a raw jalapeno. I actually swim more than once a week, but Monday has been my favorite day of the week for the longest time. And it signals a new face of this seven-day unit. Mm. And you can reset. uh, You can refresh. And for me, I like spice. I like physical workout. And I like to start a new face. um, No matter what happened in the past, immediate or longer past, Every seven days, you get a renewal. So I like to start it with a bank. And for me, is swimming and a raw jalapeno. That is a spicy life. <laughs> I love it. And I love how you're reframing for lots of folks who are listening what Monday could look, feel like, and mean to us. Right. Yeah, yeah. You know, I understand TGIF. I understand mm. that we all need breaks, right? Nobody mm. can keep on running forever. And for me, the fact that we get to restart and, you know, have a fresh start, relative to speaking, every single Monday, it's, it's a gift. 
Yes. And I uh, mm. take it seriously and I do what I need that works for me. I don't recommend it to everyone, but I think, but I do recommend that everybody should find what refresh and rejuvenate them mm-hmm. and then start their beginning point of the week with just that. Yes. I love it. And maybe even every day, I just recently started doing my workout first thing. Ah, so, and, and well, and by workout, by first thing, I mean, we get up, we get going, we have a two-year-old right now. So like she, oh. we get our routine with her, but before I start my work day, my first hour of my quote unquote work day is devoted to bringing up my energy and tending to my health. And that's, that's new for me. It used to be, I'd fit it in where it worked. Yeah. Yeah. And, and what do you notice the difference since this is a newer routine for you? Interesting. It balances out my energy for the rest of the day. Mm. And I end every week nailing whatever my, my goal was for the week, whether it's minutes, lifting a certain amount of weights or a certain number mm-hmm. of times. So I just back to the point of balancing my energy, there's no afternoon crashes. So it's something it does for my personal physiology that it lifts me and it keeps the energy even all day where before I would fit it in wherever I could. And I didn't have top energy for that workout. And then sometimes afternoon crashes. So it's very much in line with what you're saying though, right? So you can start your week with what's important. You could start your day with what's important. So what you shared just resonates deeply for me. So yeah. Yeah. And the fact that you start your day with what's non-negotiable. And if you have a two-year-old, a lot of things are non-negotiable. Most but... things these days, yes. <laughs> <laughs> but then as soon as that's over, you take care of yourself first. Yes. I love it. Yes. Well, I uh, I want listeners to know, we're going to talk, one of the things we're going to talk about today is your book, let the story do the work. And I want to emphasize it's a business storytelling book. And Esther, I want you to know, I have read a lot of storytelling books, you know, Mm -hmm. as an executive coach, I do a lot of talking about stories that inspire. We Mm -hmm. work with leaders a lot who are often thinking through their own story and how to like rally the troops and get people energized. I have never seen a book so perfect for the work and business landscape though. It has been missing. Uh, so thank you. Thank I think you. there are formulas in there that make this like some, any leader could pick it up, identify the kind of story arc they want and go to work on the story. And I think that a lot of these storytelling books are really conceptual mm-hmm. and not as easy to just plug into and come out of it with a story. So I applaud this body of work. It's amazing. I've already <laughs> sent it to several clients Um, Thank you. Yes. So I can't wait to dig in a little bit and give listeners a little bit of insight into the book, and then they'll have to just go read it to get the rest. So let's start there. You talk about three levels of communications mastery in the book. Will you give us a little sneak peek about what that's all about, what those three levels are? Yeah, I'm so glad you picked that one um, to start off with, because that's how I started the book with, to give my readers an orientations of the evolutions of communication mastery. And if you think about when we first graduated from school and we're done with our formal schooling, we got a lot of knowledge, but then those are mostly book knowledge and not quite yet a directly applicable in the workplace. So when it comes to communications, what we had to do when we first started out is, you know, you look around, you observe, you listen, you 
do maybe a little bit of research and reading yourself, and you're mostly repeating, regurgitating, and maybe paraphrasing what others have shown you and taught you and, and whatnot. That's the first level. And the, to the best of your ability to be clear and preferably concise and retaining knowledge and being able to transmit knowledge, those are good hallmarks of level one communication mastery. But then over time, and hopefully we become more and more of an expert ourselves. And that is not only because we have deepened our knowledge, but we've also formulated a point of view. And oftentimes, the, as the knowledge grown, the urge to share that breadth of knowledge also grow with it. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And level two is where most people are stuck <laughs> because they become more and more, quote unquote, entrenched in a good way right? Because they've truly become an expert and that the more they become entrenched in what they know, the more their worldview can also sometimes shrink. Mm. And so then when you combine those two elements, you know a lot in a very narrow domain. And oftentimes those are hard-won, hard-earned expertise. And so naturally we're proud of it. And when we're proud of it, we like to share it. But the urge to share a lot, and especially without the perspective of others, or in my case, I call them audience, then it can become easily and quickly overwhelming to our audience. And so that's why you see most people, especially including your audience, will have experience. They go to meetings, but they don't quite understand what the presenters are saying, or maybe what the point of the meeting, why are they there and what are they supposed to do? They just know that there are lots have been shared. And so that's where most people are stuck in level two. Level three is what I hope my work and the book, including the book, can help get people out of level two and into level three, where although your expertise and your domain knowledge continue to grow But then you begin to get out of this entrenched knowledge and then going and really experience and sample a set of perspectives that are important to your work. And so much so to a point where you can, I think most people have encountered people who seemingly being able to have this supernatural power to reduce a complex to something simple. Yes. But yet very memorable and understandable, if not inspiring. That's what I hope people will get to eventually. It's the level three of mastery. What does it take for a leader to get to a level three of mastery? Because the person (laughs) you described, and I imagine you dedicated the book to your dad, the best storyteller you've ever known, right? And I imagine he was one of those people then, if you describe Mm -hmm. him that way. It's part of their... DNA or so it looks to us, but there is some level of practice to mastery. So I guess I'm not sure what the question is here. Maybe it's how have you seen people go from two to three? Does it tend to take each person something similar, a similar recipe, or is it super different for everybody? That's a great question. And 
really what it comes down to, and I think what you are gathering from the book is most people get it that storytelling is important, important to the work of leader, you know, their own development. The real question is like, how? Mm-hmm. How do you get from two to three? You know, I don't need to say any more about it would be nice to get from two to three, but how mm-hmm. do you get there? Uh, the process isn't too different from my experience of having done this for 12 years. But each person's journey with it can be very different. And I'm sure because you do a lot of executive coaching, you can certainly relate to this. And that is awareness, Mm -hmm. self-awareness, self-awareness and what that maybe they, how they communicate isn't really getting the message across. Maybe that they have all the credentials and competence that anybody could ever ask for or dream of, but their audience, their followers, the teams, people they need to persuade, um, don't really get it, get them, don't really yeah. understand their character. Mm-hmm. And then maybe they need a self-awareness that something needs to be changed. Mm-hmm. So for me, everything starts with an awareness, self-awareness. And then oftentimes what helps is that there's an event. And what I mean by that is an event with a deadline. And it can be as simple as I will get to present to the chairman of the entire group, not just the CEO, but the CEO and the chairman. Oh, actually, the owners. Uh, a group of owners, they're interested in this too. Holy cow, I better, better whip up my game. So there's an event, there's an impending event, there's a deadline. And so when you have awareness, self-awareness, and when you have an event that they know that they're going to be in the spotlight with high stake, and then this event has an unclear deadline, you know, on April 5th, 2022, I will have to make this presentation of my life. Yeah. I love that. And I I love the idea of an event as a catalyst. I appreciate that you're encouraging us to, to begin with self-awareness. I think of a client who early in the pandemic, a CEO who had been sharing numbers and the numbers were okay. They were definitely good for their industry, given what was happening economically in the systems. And he kept getting feedback from the quote unquote field. So frontline employees who actually do all the work that everyone was terrified that layoffs were coming. And the CEO kept going, what are they talking about? Like the numbers aren't like that. Mm. And right. So he mm-hmm. was just not in the awareness of this is a you know high six figure plus earner mm-hmm. who can't remember what it's like to make 50, 60,000 and not be sure what would happen if your job went away. Right. So he had this whole journey of becoming more aware of his station Mm -hmm. as compared to other employees and needing to tell a different narrative, which your book talks about with that data. Right. So, but to your point, it began with him going, okay, what am, what am I not understanding here? What's yes. going? Yeah, like how how am I so different from them that they're seeing this differently? So, and to his credit, there's clearly a discrepancy of the picture he saw versus the feedback that he's getting. I can think of countless examples where people don't get understand why people see things, feel things differently, opposite from them, and that can be easily dismissed as. They just don't get it. They're not smart enough. 
or they don't care, or they just don't have the experience. You know, you can fill in the blank as、mm-hmm. the reason that you assign people as they don't get it. So I think to your client's credit, that at least he's willing to ask, "What am I missing here?" Yes, yes, absolutely. He cared a lot. So the awareness was the interestingly was the catalyst too at the same time. So yeah, yeah. What's the difference in your mind between proving and persuading when it comes、mm. to telling stories?、Mm, that's one of my favorite questions. I can talk for hours and hours about that. <laughs> <laughs> Let's and- put ten minutes on the clock on this. Okay, no, <laughs> tell us everything well, we could know in fifteen minutes or less on this. <laughs> very simply, <laughs> very simply, to me, proving is amassing. All evidence to support your position, your point of view, your answers to any single question. Persuading, on the other hand, is getting someone to change their mind to do what you know, what you think, and what you feel in your heart is best for them.、Mm. I can almost feel that difference. Yes, and、wow. it is. You can. The reason why I joke that I can talk about it for hours and hours is that there are a lot of technical nuance differences, but this question is best actually being felt, because I can prove all sorts of things to anyone, like eating well. Like taking good care of yourself, like being good to the environment. You know, the list can go on, but it does not mean at the end of the day that people would do anything about it. Right. On the other hand, and especially even if you take a cursory look at history, time and time again, people have been persuaded to do all sorts of things without. Needing much of any proof, so、Whoa. that's the best. That's the best of my ability that I can explain the difference between the two. Whoa, that last point just blew the lid off. That's uh, it's really powerful and so true. Yeah, so true. Yeah. You don't necessarily need one to do the other or have one to achieve the other. Yeah, which is so antithetical to what we think about business. We think proof first, and sometimes proving only. Right. Yes. When the point you just made that a lot of people are persuaded without any proving, oftentimes <laughs> without any fact, and ouch, that hurts because I think we can all relate to that at some point in our lives where we found we'd been persuaded and really should have looked for some proof. That's fascinating, fascinating point and distinction. Thank you for that. And leaders, if you're listening, really think about what you're doing more of if you're doing more of one versus the other and how to balance those out and. Into, I would assume, Esther, just be more strategic about which you really need to do in each、mm-hmm. situation. Predominantly,、mm-hmm. is that fair? Yeah, and I appreciate, I really appreciate you、uh, bringing that point home for leaders. Is that I am not saying one is better than the other or more needed、mm-hmm. than the other, but it is important for me to point out the distinct differences between the two, so that we know when to do what. Mm-hmm. Great, thank you. As I was learning more about you, Esther, something really interesting popped up in the information I found, which was that、Uh-oh. you, your organization's done a recent research study on 
it's, I guess, I think the title was transforming partnerships with major donors and it ended up being featured in the New York times. Congratulations. Mm -hmm. Thank you. It's a big deal. So tell us how you went from, well, you haven't left storytelling, but how you started out in storytelling really to wealth creators and and moving to wealth creators. So why did you, it's not a pivot. What's the right word? Why did you integrate that into your work? Yeah. Yeah. It's like, wait, storytelling in business. Okay. Most people get, but Mm -hmm. wealth creators, how did that fit into the big picture of what I do? I think it's why some people have asked that um, after the publications. So there's a bit of a context because I teach the application of storytelling in business that got me in a program teaching storytelling uh, for major gift fundraisers. And I sit on a couple of board myself. So, and my husband and I are fairly active in the philanthropic world. So I'm not unfamiliar with that world, but because I taught that program for six, seven years, I work with a lot of major gifts fundraisers. And I hear over and over again how it's hard, getting harder and harder, and you know the needs are always there. And in terms of at least major gifts, there is this trend of a smaller player uh, having outsized impact on the entire industry. But then one thing really caught my attention, and that is even for those whose work very much dependent on a set of audience. So in this case, major gift fundraisers very much dependent on understanding their audience, the Mm -hmm. major gift donors. Right. I realized the pink elephant in the room at the end of the day was that they actually don't. They don't know. They don't know their donor donors. Mm -hmm. They have cursory knowledge. They have superficial understanding, but they actually don't know who they are. So I, set out to do the study myself. Mm-hmm. And what did you find? Well, interestingly, at least in the US, up to 80% of what would be considered high net worth or ultra high net worth. So this is not just your 1%, this is your 0.5%, your 0.1% of the populations. Up to 80% of them are first generations wealth creators. So just think about it. They didn't inherit money. Yeah. They created their wealth themselves, and a great majority of them came from middle class or even lower middle class. And so, in other words, they don't know the world of wealth at all. It's new to them. It's their immigrants, in fact. And they don't know the language. They don't know the customs. They don't know the handshake, so to speak. And so, although they are wildly successful in one aspect, Everything else is new to them, including philanthropy. And so one another thing that most people don't know is that a lot of them don't know what to do about their philanthropy. They know they want to do it. They want to be involved. They want to be generous. They want to share their wealth, but they don't know how. And so, I mean, things like that goes on and on. So imagine then you're the gift officer you assume that donor X live in this fabulous house. It's just one of their many houses. They're wildly successful. They're very well respected. They actually have a lot of doubts about where to best direct their philanthropic dollars. Imagine that. Yeah. And then how would that change your 
approach, your conversations, as well as your cultivation process. If I remember correctly, I read, because I read some of this research that was online and which Mm -hmm. I think people can find on your website. So I want to, we'll be sure to include the link to the research there that these are folks who as first generation wealth, they haven't upgraded their homes. Like they're, they're Mm -hmm. very much Mm -hmm. not flaunting their money. And, and so I would assume further to that, they have maybe different values than someone who is generationally wealthy. So that makes sense to me if that's the point that fundraisers are just kind of missing the mark on what motivates these new generations when it comes to philanthropic endeavors. Okay. Very interesting. Correct. One I remember very clearly, he said, lives in the same house for 40 years. Very proud of it. He has one bathroom, the same toilet this whole time. And he's very proud of it. Yeah. Yeah. And then you think about them, all the fancy gala, all the expensive wine and food. How would they think about that? They're not interested in that. I wouldn't think. No, no, no. And so this is sort of bring back to why I sort of make this connections is that how do you persuade your audience if you don't know who they are? Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And I value, respect philanthropy in such a way that I feel like I need to do something to contribute to the body of understanding of, especially given our societal perceptions of the wealthy, because the ones that caught our attentions, the Paris Hilton, the, the Kardashian families, or they tend to, when they get in certain bad actors get in trouble and they're all over the news, think about the mission scandals. Right. Right. What you hear about the wealthy tends to skew extremely negative. Mm -hmm. And so I feel like I need to really bring in the humanity of this group of people who very much can escape our radar anyway, because they don't flaunt their wealth, most of them, and because they don't fit into those popular stereotypes. Yeah. That it's really easy to miss them. Or even if you have one in front of you, it's really easy to miss the mark when you're trying to persuade them. What's coming up for me as you share this is I'm going to zoom out of the context and the content of this particular body of your work and just kind of point out that you have spent a lot of your career storytelling and helping leaders tell stories. You also kind of just casually mentioned how you're also very into philanthropy and serving on boards. Mm -hmm. What I love about what you've created with this research and this program is that you have integrated your work streams in a way that is so of service to the charities, to the, the future philanthropists, these new wealth, newly acquired wealth or created wealth. And I'm sh- I'm pointing that out to just, I mean, high five you, Esther, but also for our executives who are sitting here listening, I think so many of us feel like we want to give more um, mm-hmm. and we're not sure how to, and I'm not talking about money. I'm talking about of our skill of our time mm-hmm. and sometimes also of our money. Right. And what you've done is it looks so seamless. Like you saw the intersection and you created the program product experience that we need to move forward and catalyze a whole group of people. So listeners could learn from that and potentially also scan their own boards, their own lives, their own skill sets to think, where does all of this intersect in a way that could 
mobilized an entire group of people. So yeah, yeah, amazing. Yeah, thank you. Amazing. Which brings us to another body of work you have, Esther, because like most entrepreneurs, you're not just dabbling in one little thing. (laughs) I know that you also work with family enterprises and you share their stories on your own podcast, which will link to family in business. So how are family run businesses different from like the non-business owning families out there? Ah, this is another population that's really near and dear to my heart. And in some way, some obscure way, it's almost similar to the first generation wealth creators that they are not very well understood by the general public. If you have HBO and maybe you've seen the show uh, Succession, it's sort of- Or are addicted to it. I mean, (laughs) maybe- (laughs) <laughs> so the sort of dynastic family, yeah. the generation struggles, the backstabbing and all of that really made for great TV dramas. Mm-hmm. And I applaud the shows and that's why it's so addicted. But I think, again, the general public's perceptions of the wealthy, I think family-owned business maybe also uh, have been a bit misunderstood. by. Oh, I imagine. Sure. Yeah. Majority of the families I've worked with and speak to, first and foremost, was never about themselves. It was never about money or was never about their share of things, whether it be money, power, positions. Majority of family-owned businesses, the owning families, what they care most about is their employees. What they care most, second most, is about the community, the environment. Just last week, I read on NPR about Dollywood, the theme park. Mm-hmm. It actually was owned by a family enterprise called the Hershen Enterprise. But the employees of Dollywood and a whole host of theme parks that the Hershen Enterprise own and operate, their employees now and their children, in fact, they're eligible for complete tuition, post-secondary tuition support. Wow. And that is is phenomenal and I applaud them. And that is truly coming from collections of families, nuclear families that really care about their employees and their orientation. When you speak about family versus non-family, especially non-family public companies, is that they not nearly as beholden to the quarterly reports. Their orientation is multiple years and usually the decade of measurements that the measurements in the decades not quarter but the interesting ironic about family businesses is that they do tend to be more private mm-hmm. isn't funny when you mention my podcast that's actually for the Cal school of management at northwestern university mm-hmm. i have a hard time getting my guests to promote help promote <laughs> yeah the podcast. They mm-hmm. just, they're just not into it. They don't want to, they don't want to come across as bragging maybe, or they, they don't, don't want to share too much of their story and publicize it. Or what do you think it is? That's just the nature is private. Is, they're very private. Mm-hmm. And so uh, I think that is likely one of the contributors of a lack of true understanding of family businesses because they tend to be more private. And many times for good reasons, but I think where we try to talk to guests 
who are very open and very vulnerable. In fact, I think I read from a couple of comments on one of the podcast sharing platforms that they call it uncensored business stories, which actually I, I do edit. And um, but it's interesting how candid they are to a point where people aren't used to that level of vulnerability. Just describe it as uncensored completely. Interesting. <laughs> wow. Yeah. So it's 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 a it's an interesting segment to work with because they oftentimes ironically don't think about their story as much as they should because it started by mom and dad or grandparents, great-grandparents, their stories could be better understood. Mm -hmm. But it has to feel so personal. Like we have this comfort level for those of us in non-family owned businesses of telling our story and it feels a little detached, just not too close to the vest because it's all about the business. But when mm -hmm. your business is run by your family, there ha it has to feel like there aren't as many emotional boundaries. It has to feel deeply vulnerable. Because mm -hmm. um, yeah. you're not yeah. just talking about an interaction with the CEO, you might be talking about an interaction with your dad and how yes. you portray that or your mom may be very careful how that comes off. Right. So, yeah, wow. I'm yeah. just really humbled by thinking about that. Never thought about that way. Yeah. And you probably are familiar with the little red wagon radio flyer. Yeah. Yes. Um, so the third generation CEO, Robert Passon, he was actually my very first guest and he talked about this um, argument that he had with his dad about, you know, I think it was the 75th anniversary of the company and he wanted to put, make this big PR push and make a big splash and put, you know, radio flyer back in on the map and whatnot. And then dad just told him, no, he does not like PR. He doesn't, mm. didn't understand what that was for. And he's also an extremely private person. Mm -hmm. So him describing that argument with his dad, man, a few word, puffing cigarette or cigar in the office, and then just you know, kind of dismiss this idea that he eventually won him over and it became this big splash and they yeah. had very, very positive feedback for that. But, you know, when family members talk about, yeah, I disagree with the CEO. Oh, the CEO is also my dad. Yeah. That's a whole different animal. It's a whole different business animal. So listeners will have to tune in to the family in business podcast and acquaint ourselves with the uniqueness of family-owned businesses. And also, I think, take some really important inspiration from them in the non-family-owned businesses, because we can all inspire each other from those different sectors. So thank you for that. Totally agree. Esther, I'm going to pivot in a minute to talk, like to kind of step outside of your work and have you zoom up a bit and speak more holistically to leadership. But before we do that, I just want to make sure... Is there anything else you'd like to say, whether it's about the book or any of the other couple of work components, work streams we talked about that I don't know to ask you today that's important that you get to share? Uh, you've asked the question of all questions. Mm -hmm. um, <laughs> uh, I think what I want to say about acquiring the skill of being a good storyteller are two things. One is that 
you can't possibly become a good storyteller without becoming a good story collector. So I think your listeners, especially your uh, loyal listeners, will basically just learn it by osmosis, by just listening to how you ask questions. It's how you can collect stories. It's just like writers cannot be writers without being ferocious, ferocious readers. Mm-hmm. Storytellers have to be story collectors. And how do you collect stories? One easy way is by asking great questions, just like the way you've been doing. So that's one. And two is that if you feel that it might be a bit daunting, perhaps you've had a lot of great storytellers in your life and your family at work, they just somehow know how to do it. They just roll out of bed and roll into a boardroom and just somehow, oh, yeah, <laughs> start telling stories. Like, how did they do that? Mm-hmm. Don't be mystified by that because. That's exactly why I wrote the book, because there's a process. The process is the same, really, more or less for everyone. Maybe everybody's journey with it is different. And so I just encourage everybody to just get started. Don't get mystified by it. Great. Esther, do you, your firm teaches classes too, right? Like that's a mm-hmm. big part of how people can access and practice is, is through hands-on work with your group, Right. Correct. And you work with organizations. You'll come in and work with organizations as well with leadership teams. Okay. Yes. Yes, I do. I do. As well as, you know, if you just want to try it out, dip your toes in, we host a monthly story lab. Uh, It's completely open, but we have very limited number of seats. It's done virtually. And so this is truly a lab. You bring a story, a working draft, no need to be perfect, and then come in and it's facilitated by my colleague, Rena Consul, and test it out, try it out, get feedback. Fantastic. Thank you. Before we move too far from storytelling, I want to ask you one more question, but I am going to, this is more from a leadership more holistic perspective of leadership. When it comes to telling great stories, looking beyond the framework, what do you often see senior leaders struggling with when they go to tell a story? And I'm thinking about things like, is it overcoming, you know, the discomfort with being vulnerable, for example? Is it tapping into emotion? Like, what is it that you see leaders often struggle with? The irony that although you're in the spotlight, it is so not about you. Mm. So, Mm. yes, people Mm. are there to listen to you, what you have to say, and having certain expectations of what whatever you have to say will enlighten them, educate them, you know, help them. So it's really not about you. Right. So I think the sooner people can come around to it, embrace it, it helps with the nerves. It helps with your own point of view about your content. And it really helps you almost quite literally put yourself in their shoes. And so maybe what you have to share is a personal story or the latest recently launched product that really is going to revolutionize what, you know, X, Y, and Z. Mm -hmm. That's yours. That's your company's. But at the end of the day, it is so, so not about you. (laughs) I'm laughing because it kind of seems obvious, but I know from trying to tell good stories myself and like the literal practice of sitting down to write a story, I've been there and done it. 
it is so much harder than it sounds because we start (laughs) with us most often. And a lot of storytelling framework teaches you to do that. And I love that you're flipping it on its ear. No, it's the opposite. It's the audience we think of first, right? Yeah. 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 That's great. So thinking about leadership, Esther, you lead a company, you lead on these boards. I mean, you, you embody leadership. You're doing it all day, every day. You're doing it in your family with your two daughters. How has your own leadership evolved over the last couple of years in particular? And what's prompted that change? um, How has it evolved over the past two years? I think where I tend to do better at work that I don't do as well at home is that at work, I maybe have been trained and conditioned better that there's so much I can do. So going back to that, it's no, not about you, the leader. I'm better at that than I'm at home. So the past two years, because we've all gone through the lockdown Um, My oldest during that time was in sixth grade, turning 12, and then since then turned 13. It's a very pivotal age, lots of struggles, personal, social, academic, and she hopefully soon will find out where she's going to high school. And we live in the city, so we have to apply. Um, It's not an automatic thing. You go to your neighborhood school. So all of that. I just have to, in my personal parental role, remind myself that to have more faith in the people is entrusted in me for my, to care. That I may not see what I think I should see, the growth or development or change, but I'll so much is go far beyond where the eyes can see mm-hmm. and have more faith, I guess, is the end of the day of what I brought to the table. Or say it another way, just stop being so darn hard on myself. <laughs> it's a message everybody listening could afford to hear. And I appreciate your vulnerability in answering the question that way. And reminding all of us that there is not as much separation from the leader we are at home as we are at work, if we will allow it. Mm -hmm. Um, Mm -hmm. Both of those environments can influence the other so nicely. But I think as a fellow parent, I completely identify with that. It's hard to disassociate. Mm -hmm. Yeah. It's hard to disassociate yourself with what's happening at the home front. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. It's almost always that the good attribute should attribute to you, but maybe it shouldn't be a hundred percent attributed to you. But then the same goes with the bad, right? Not as good that maybe it has something to do with you. Maybe it has nothing to do with you. And so having, keeping that perspective and that balance that you mentioned so much that it should be rightly just keep pounding on people over and over again is that, we need to have balance. Well said. What have you, as in your work, as you get to hear leaders' stories, and I would have to assume people love to overshare with you, given the work <laughs> you do. What do you see leaders struggling with the last couple of years? What are you observing thematically? I think 
it's hard, especially the further up you move, the harder it is. So the further up you move, the higher the stake, the harder it becomes for people to delineate the difference between sharing what is personal versus what is private. So perhaps what I would say is that being a mother of a 12, 13-year-old during the pandemic is really challenging. Mm. That's something personal to me. But I stop right there. There's no more private things that I would share beyond that. Got it. And I share that because it's obviously something that I have been doing a lot of growing in. And growing usually involves some pain, at least some. And I decided to share that because I am rather sure that most of your listeners, one way or the other, can relate to that. Mm -hmm. That's when I decide that, you know, it is personal, but it's okay to share. I think I hope to that it will serve some purpose, some good purpose for the listeners. But then I know where the line is when it gets from personal to private. That is a great distinction. People appreciate personal touch. Yes. But they don't need to know your private business. Yeah. Oh, I really love that. I I think you're giving leaders, a, a lot of leaders permission to take a little ownership back because one of the things we are also observing at Bright Arrow is that leaders are being asked to be more emotionally available in both ways, like be there for me as the employee, but then also tell me how you're feeling and like be a human with me. And I actually very much appreciate that shift in movement. But to your point, it's uncharted territory at work for, for most senior leaders. It's the more senior, the more uncharted that experience is generationally. And I think it's natural that leaders would be unsure where that line is. And I don't think I've ever heard anyone point that out, Esther. That is so brilliant and so true. Yeah, thank you. And Mm. and if folks want to look up a couple of good examples that I've come across, Robert Passon of uh, Radio Flyer would be good. If you just Google him and or in YouTube and whatnot, there will be like lots of speaking that he had done over the years that have that perfect balance to me between being personal, but also guarding the private. Mm -hmm. Um, Another good example would be Scott Kirby, the CEO of United. Totally different company, one one family owned, one publicly traded. And Scott also just has this very amazing ability to be personable, sometimes a bit personal, without ever treading anywhere close to being private. And he's the CEO of this airline, major airline company yeah. that is under heavy regulations and it's in the news a lot because, you know, flying, the health of our aviation mm. industry and, you know, and so forth. So, you know, if they want to sort of by learning by osmosis again, yeah. Yeah. kind of watch how people who are really good at that, how to do it, those Two are the top of minds that I can think of. They're really good at it. Brilliant. Thank you for that. Last question for you before we get to the question I like to ask all of our leaders that join us on the podcast. What, in your opinion, might leaders be doing in their personal lives that would impact how they lead at work, positively impact their leadership at work? Uh, This might sound really old and cliche, 
I or classic uh, is another <laughs> word. It's classic, whatever you're about to say. It just really depends on how I say it, right? <laughs> it could be cliche or classic. It's up yeah. to you now. Yeah, let's see what you do here, Esther. A while ago, I started doing this warm-up questions with my podcast guest. And the warm-up has to do with a couple of questions. And one of them is, what is your favorite way to waste time? I purposely don't tell them that questions ahead of time. Sure. I just want to get whatever is top of mind. And people have this strange, not I guess not strange, but it actually is understandable relationship with this whole idea. Oh, I can't waste time. Right. <laughs> you know, especially if you your time is definitely at a premium at work, most likely, you know, with your family. And how can you? waste time, let alone your favorite way to waste time. But it is in that paradox. That's why I want to hear what people have to say. Yeah. And so inevitably, what most of the time I get back is their hobbies. Mm -hmm. And so I would really encourage people to set aside reasonable amount of time to pursue their hobby. But even better if they would allow it, just set aside reasonable amount of time for them to waste time. Just do something unproductive. Love it. <laughs> and I won't get into it. There's a, a huge body of work, research work that points to how good it is for your body and mind and relationship to do something unproductive mm -hmm. regularly. It's the wellspring of creativity. It comes from that space we create. It really does. Okay. This is brilliant too. I love it. And I'm, I feel like I skirted around having to answer the question because I think I might be embarrassed if I told everyone how I wasted my time. Oh, do tell, do tell. Oh my God. <laughs> well, I, I'll tell you mine if you'll tell me yours. Okay. Okay. Yes. Okay. All right. We have a pack. Oh God. Okay. Mine is not hobby related. It's okay. I watch The Real Housewives. Like <laughs> ding, 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 yeah. 10 out of 10. <laughs> it's pretty up there, isn't it? I have literally had people tell me they've lost respect for me when I tell them that I watch that and I don't even care. But that is a, that's a good time waster. I mean, my brain is off. There isn't a shred of anything intellectual going on there. And uh, I completely dip out of reality for just a little while. So, uh, okay. Okay. Right. What's yours, well, Esther? You're going to make me look bad. Tell me, tell me the... <laughs> <laughs> Tell me how so, you waste time. So I literally waste time. Like, see, so you can, you know, tag your value judgment on someone by what they watch, right? By the way, you just double your respect with me oh, um, with that. Um, Are so, you my kindred on that? Thank you very much. <laughs> but I literally waste time. It's my favorite way to waste time is if I give myself the permission to come in and do an email. And then I'll go to my bookshelf and grab a book. I'll read a page. And then I'll go clean up my mess pile on the other side of my mm -hmm. office. But I would only get like maybe a few pieces of paper organized. Then I'll go get myself a cup of coffee. <laughs> and then I would um, remember that I need to make a doctor's appointment and so on and so forth. I think you get the picture. That is literally how I just like to meander you, you putz around i putz around i like to meander uh -huh. that's like that's like 
I don't know. I feel like my mental, I'm mentally swimming in clouds when I, yeah. when, I when I can do that. Love it. I love it. <laughs> oh, thank you. That's a super fun question. And I'm going to try this on a couple of folks. That's great. And I also support the idea of having a hobby. And I will tell you, you probably see this in your work. A lot of leaders don't have hobbies. They just work. And I have been guilty of that. There's this quote by a centenarian. Hmm. Is that how you say it? Centenarian. Centenarian. Yeah. 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 And it's loosely, I'm rephrasing it, but she said, or quoting it, she said, if I had known I was going to live to be a hundred, I would have picked up the trumpet at 40. Because I'd be classically trained by now. And that stuck with me. I read that sometime in my early 20s and that stuck with me. And I too got kind of sick of telling people when they asked me what I do for fun that I read or work out and set out to play in some hobbies this year. So I appreciate you bringing that forward for us. It's very important. So how can listeners find you online, Esther, if they want to learn more about you, your work? Yeah, um, the website is probably the best place, Mm leadershipstorylab.com. It's just a central repository of all my research, podcasts, blog posts. Um, I do have a Forbes uh, columns. If you just Google my name, Esther Choi and Forbes, then you should be able to find it uh, quickly. And um, yeah, we try to share uh, mainly LinkedIn and Twitter. Mm -hmm where we have spotted great storytelling examples. There's so many actually. Um, So those will be the good places. Great. I'll make sure I include all of that in the show notes for listeners so they can easily go look everything up. And in closing, Esther, you know, this, as you know, the podcast was created to discover the behaviors, practices, beliefs, and skills that future leaders need to possess so that they can lead these systems that have and will continue to change at warp speed. So to get your read on what's required of future leaders, just finish this sentence for us. Leaders of the future will. Leaders of the future will have to know there's own stories as well as the stories of their audience. Mm. Beautifully said, and it's perfectly clear the work we have to do there. So thank you so much for joining us, Esther. It has been, it's a pleasure to learn from you today and to be in your company. And I would encourage our listeners to go absorb all your great work out there. Thank you for putting that out into the world for us. Oh, thank you. Thank you for this opportunity. It's equally enjoyable for me, if not more. And I just really appreciate having the opportunity to learn by observing how you conduct and guide conversations and just by your preparations, by your thoughtfulness, by the questions that you design and sequence. And, you know, it looks like it's effortless as with most things, like we're watching the Winter Olympians, mm-hmm. as if it's effortless, but you know that lots of efforts has been put into it. So I really, really appreciate you. That is such a high compliment. On that note, we're going to end. Thank you, Esther. You're the best. Thank you. Thank All you. right. Take care. Thanks for listening to this episode of the Workplace Forward podcast, where leaders and executives can stay ahead of the curve on emerging leadership ideas and self-care best practices. Guided by executive coach Tegan Travato and her expert guests. Please take 60 seconds to help others discover the Workplace Forward podcast by going to iTunes to subscribe, give five stars, and leave a comment. Want to learn more about Bright Arrow Coaching and leadership development? Visit the website at www.brightarrowcoaching.com. 
see you next time. And while you're filling your team's cups, remember to take care of yourself too.